Episode number 510. My name is Minterdial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of a network called the Evergreen Podcast Network, based out of the US. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. There are lots of really interesting shows on it. This week's interview is with Rupert Robson, who studied philosophy of mind at Oxford University and pursued a career in banking until 2006 when he turned his attention to writing about how humankind might shape the world and in turn be shaped in the coming decades. The result is his book, The Sentient Robot, The Last Two Hurdles in the Race to Build Artificial Superintelligence. In this conversation with Rupert, we discuss his career path, the importance of the humanities in business, the soft and hard problems of consciousness, empathy and AI, the route to artificial superintelligence, the important ethical considerations, and how businesses might think about dealing with sentient machines. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please go ahead and drop in a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Rupert Robson, how fun to have you on my show. I, I found you in a, in a magazine. Uh, I reached out to you, and you said, yeah, let's do it wanted to have you on my show to talk about your book that was released at the end of 2022, The Sentient Robot, The Last Two Hurdles in the Race to Build Artificial Super Intelligence, aka ASI. Rupert Robson, in your own words, who's Rupert? Well, good morning, Minter. Um, Rupert is somebody who got bored with investment banking about 16 or 17 years ago. Um, after I must admit, having had a a wonderful time doing it, but there's only so long you can you can do any of these things. And um, I woke up one morning, and it it wasn't much more than that. And I thought I want to go back to a subject that um, I enjoyed a huge amount when I looked at it um, at Oxford doing PPE, and the subject was the subject of consciousness. And uh, back in those days, I read a book called The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And um, I, I found it desperately intriguing. Um, anyway, I did nothing about it for the following uh, 25 years while I was in my banking. But I thought to myself, this, this could be something that I would find really rewarding um, in a post-banking life. And I left to write a book on it. Um, of course, it's quite a dry and dusty subject taking, taken on its own. And I think the breakthrough moment for me was um, six or seven years ago when I realised that it could be made a much more interesting subject when twinned by a subject that was just beginning to impinge on most people's consciousness, um, specifically artificial intelligence. And the film world, of course, had got there ahead of me and the TV world had got there ahead of me. Um, but putting those two things together um, to create the book, The Sentient Robot, um, really has been my life um, alongside um, one, two other things for the last 15 years. And it's been one of the most rewarding things I've done in my adult life. 
It's brilliant. Uh, you describe it uh, briefly in the book about how you were walking along with your wife in Kerala, in India. Uh, just tell us what what was happening in that. What were you discussing in that conversation? I'd love to be, have been a fly on the wall. Well, I, I feel quite sorry for Georgina because, of course, um, I I would subject her in the way that one does when one's thinking aloud but it's even more fun to do so with a human being alongside you Apparently. and i used to um, subject her to these these sessions and of course um walking along a beach is is an ideal place to do it you're you're trapped really in your walk um but it's a, a, a lovely trap because it's um so blissful and you can just chatter away and and i'd been grappling with a problem that um that anyone who thinks about consciousness grapples with um which is you know if you're if you're reductive about it if you just think that um we're all machines um it's very easy to to sort of argue that consciousness doesn't really exist you can sort of explain it away and that's what philosophers call a reductive approach to consciousness um but of course the the flip side is that if you don't go along with that you you sort of have to reinvent physics to come a, come up with an alternative explanation of consciousness um and there are one or two uh examples of that such as epiphenomenalism which is a an approach to consciousness which is about thinking that consciousness doesn't do anything it's just along there for the ride and so that's what i was grappling with and and that's when i came up with what i call my mirrored homunculus theory of consciousness which which um evades those two approaches the the reductive approach and the let's invent physics again approach um and i can't remember where we were on our walk but it was probably about three quarters of an hour after breakfast and I thought to myself, my goodness, I should come to Kerala more often. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely place, Kerala. In the in the the mirrored homunculus theory, obviously there are going to be a number of things which I need help on understanding, and and I've never studied theory of mind, so I want to get into that as well. But to what extent is it also brush aside the soft and hard problems of consciousness? Well, that that is an excellent question. Um, and in many ways, um, that is the question, um, so far as my book is concerned. The hard problem of consciousness was, and, and I'm going to um, just read a couple of lines, was brilliantly dissected by a philosopher of mine called David Chalmers. And um, he points out that when we do things, um, cognitive and behavioral functions are taking place in our brain. You've got you've got all these neurons whizzing around in our brain, and it's it's sort of information processing if you think about it. And he says, why doesn't all this information processing go on in the dark, free of any inner feel? And if you stop to think about it for a moment, it's a really good question. Why why do we need to feel? the neurons whizzing around in our brain in order to make that information processing that they that they instantiate why do we need the inner field at all to to allow the neurons to do their work and that is the hard problem and um it's even been turned into play as as um i'm sure you know by tom stopper called the hard problem um and 
The reason the mirrored homunculus theory um, gets around that is because it says, actually, consciousness is an illusion. And it's a very, very useful illusion. And you've got to go right back to babyhood to pick on up, pick up on how that illusion might have arisen in the mind. Um, and my theory is that as babies, we sense um, agency, we perceive agency in our in the people around us, most, most obviously our primary caregivers. We we look at them. Even as a baby, when we're not able to talk or, or you know, think terribly deeply, we look at them and we recognize in them a difference between uh, them and you know, a refrigerator or a television or a football or whatever. We see a difference. And the, the difference that we perceive in our unthinking, nonverbal way is that they have agency. And through... Um, a particular type of uh, neuron that we have on our brains called mirror neurons, we import that, we mirror, we reflect that sense of agency in our own brains. Now that of course is not, the. that's not it, that's not where the journey ends. Um, our brain, so when we import that sense of agency, what we what, what's actually happening is that a neuronal network is being built up in our brains. And um, the rest of the brain perceives that neuronal network as an entity, as an agent. And that is an illusion, but it is that illusion which is consciousness. And to, to go back to where I started, I suppose, that gets around the hard problem mm. Because you're not saying with that, you're not saying that that neuronal work, that cognitive and behavioral functionality that I was talking about, you're not saying that that has to be uh, beefed up, so to speak, by consciousness in order to function. Um, what instead you're saying is that that cognitive and behavioral function um, functionality um, works with the agency to give you the feeling of consciousness through through that illusion it it sounds quite complex in a way if i'm honest um but um any theory of consciousness sounds quite complex um the important thing is that it frees us from chalmers hard problem right well listen this is groovy i had planned a few other questions but we're going to dig in on this one a second here so what I am hearing is that as a, a baby or a human, we observe the activation or the activity of the other, and we, we characterize that as some sort of agency that the other being or object has. And then through our mirror neuron system, we, we, we sort of replicate, or at least we mirror, of course, that, which when you're talking about uh, robots sounds replicable, therefore, because you can replicate. And um, in way way this relates into what I do in my field, which is the notion of empathy and empathy within human beings which will also allow for the agency of the other and then to try to feel into that agency, but also cognitively just to understand what is going on in the other person without necessarily feeling it. 
So to the extent that cognitive empathy is, is uh, completely programmable as opposed to feeling what's happening, you also mentioned earlier this notion of needing to feel the neurons firing up. And that's going to be different than the, the notion of affectivity or feelings, right? It's more just a biological distinction you are making versus some machines doing it. And so if you see that agency and you take that agency, it suggests then that the receiving object, the robot that is observing your uh, expressions and, and your experience, I'm going to take on board that agency, which in my word, I'm hearing, Rupert, means that robots then will have agency. Yes, um, I, I think that is absolutely where we will wind up. And I think the controversial thing about that is that I think that's a good thing. And I've been, I've been asked many, many times, why on earth would one want to create a sentient robot? Why would one want robots with consciousness? And um, the answer, I believe, is that, and it goes back to you, to, to some of the points you've just made about empathy. We need artificial superintelligences to be able to see the world through our eyes. And without that, uh, we're in danger of falling into a world where we've created that, that powerful technology. And then we failed to be able to have any influence or control over how it develops, how it goes forward. If, on the other hand, we've de designed it obviously with other safeguards but we've designed it ultimately with the um with the ability or not just the ability the the entrenched characteristic of seeing the world through our eyes then i think we stand a much better chance of um winding up with the technology that is beneficial for mankind rather than ultimately hostile or, or just inadvertently an enemy of mankind. So in writing such a book, The Sentient Robot, um, as a writer, I, I always feel, or at least try to recognize how the writing of the book informs me or and uh, can alter me and, and uh, what impact it has in the research and so on. And there's also the the bias or the perspective that we go into writing the book. I wanted to ask you, Rupert, what would be, how would you describe your perspective on humanity before and after the book? Very interesting question. Um, I think before I wrote the book, I sort of had an instinct um, that we were not all that we cracked ourselves up to be, that we were a bit simpler than that. Um, I mean, I think, I think humans are inclined to put themselves on pedestals. Mm. Um, that creates all sorts of problems. Um, I, I think it makes us, in many senses, an enemy to the world in which we live. Um, you know, we, we think that we're the best. And I think that has contributed to some of today's problems, most obviously the impact on the environment. Um, so I had that instinct, but I think what, what writing the book has firmed up in me is a belief that we truly are just machines. And that by virtue of evolution, 
um, these mirror neurons came along. And initially they were very useful in the context of imitation and learning through imitation um, is something that we humans don't just do. There are other animals that, that, that would appear to do that, um, such as, as monkeys and, um, and the great apes. And um, so by virtue of these funny things that came along called mirror neurons that had this useful thing, um, we, we machines became conscious machines. And so I asked myself the question from time to time, you know, does it matter that I'm absolutely convinced that I'm just a machine? Does it cause me to think about who I am and who other people are in a different way? And the truth is not really, because I still, even with that knowledge, I still have all the emotions that I had before. I still have all of my other reasoning capabilities that I had before. So it, I, I think about the world in a more dispassionate sense, but beyond that, it hasn't really altered the way that I look at things. Mm. I, I suspect you will have read Byron Reese's uh, The Fourth Age, uh, which, which essentially uh, he lays out how our filters will, uh, well, he, 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 for example, says, either you believe we're a machine or we're not. And there are four different perspectives that he lays out that help to understand the filter with which we reading his book and understanding life in general. So that was uh, tremendously interesting. I feel that uh, in, in, in thinking we're a machine, the word dispassionate seems to be a totally appropriate and would tend to regard emotions as a lesser concept. Yes. Um, I, I tackle this head on in the book um, and I cite the work of a neuroscientist called Antonio Damasio, mm -hmm. um, who has done one or two fascinating um, observations and experiments um, where he found that people who had damage to the emotion parts regions of their brain became curiously counterintuitively became much less good at making decisions and um, the way I describe it in this the, in the book is by saying that the cognitive capabilities of our brains tell you how to get there but you need the emotional regions of our brains to tell you where there is Cognition on its own won't set the goal. That's what emotions are for. So I think that actually emotions are of fundamental importance to, um, to the human being. Moreover, if you think about a robot at the moment, any robot you care to take, um, they only know what to do because you've already set their goal for them. They don't have emotions, and so they don't have goals. The only goals they have are set by their designers. If, on the other hand, you devise a robot without a preset goal and, and you just leave it to do what it does and it has no emotions, it won't do anything at all. Hmm. So emotions are really terribly important. In the book you discuss, and it was something that I, I was not familiar with, like many of the concepts to be uh honest um the 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 difference between understanding emotions and motivating emotions because i was like 
oh, whoa, what is an, what is an emotion that understands versus an emotion that motivates? I have generally thought of emotions as e-motions, therefore e-movements. Yes, quite right. Absolutely right. And it's a slightly artificial distinction. And um, the reason I made the distinction was because um, for the sentient robot to empathize with us, to understand where we're coming from, what drives us, um, he or she um, needs, the robot, uh, needs to be able to make sense of every single emotional system coursing through the human brain and empathize with those. And so we want the sentient robot to empathize with our anger and other things of that nature. But when it comes to driving the sentient robot's behavior, we don't want the robot to be angry as part of its decision-making process. Oh, no, 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 no. So that's, it is an artificial distinction. You're absolutely right. In our own brains, there is no such distinction. It's purely a distinction for the purposes of the robot. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. So in, in in the work that I'm I'm doing in a similar capacity, I have been thinking about how technology changes us. And so in Thomas Kuhn's sort of explanation of the paradigm shifts, how calculus was instrumental in changing our way of understanding the future and electricity and uh, acoustics and all sorts of different things. It feels like what we're going through now, even before we achieve artificial superintelligence ASI, even with what we're already achieving, the the act of programming computers to look at and understand us is helping us to understand us before we even get to ASI. Do you, what do you think about that? I absolutely right. I mean, one of the uh, one of the best books um, that I read as I was as writing this book was a book um, called Cerebral Cortex: Principles of Operation by Professor Edmund Rolls, and he is what they call in the trade a computational neuroscientist, and um, his his understanding of how the brain works is informed by his understanding of how networks of neurons work and how different architectures of neuronal networks um, have different capabilities in the brain um, from categorizing objects on, on the one hand to um, 
being able to perform computations on the other hand. Um, another example, I suppose, where the two things come together uh, would be given by DeepMind, which is the... Google. Um, exactly, artificial intelligence research capability of Google, not the only one by any means, but one of the most important, and founded by or co-founded by somebody called Demis Asabis, who has both a neuroscientific background and a computer science background, as well as being a jolly good chess player back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so the and 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 many of the principles by which DeepMind um, does its work. Uh, use reinforcement learning, uh, which is an AI um, methodology which um, bears uncanny parallels to the way that the human brain works. Um, If you think about the dopamine system, to sort of put it at its simplest. Um, So the two go together, and I think that's a very, very healthy thing. Again, I don't think we want to design artificial superintelligence in a way that is alien to humanity i think it needs to be dovetailed with humanity so that it is as beneficial to humanity as possible well then coming back to my earlier question which is um our vision or your vision of humanity because if it's just to dovetail uh let's assume then you have a positive vision of humanity to be comparable to or is ASI to help us become better at humanity? Very good question. And and actually, I mean, as we all know, um, some of the early examples of machine learning can wind up with all sorts of frightful um, outcomes, typically uh, biases and so on and so forth. Um, There's the the wonderful story of Microsoft's early chatbot, Tay, which was trained on Twitter and wound up being a a foul-mouthed chatbot that had to be taken off the airways 24 hours later. Um, So it's a very, very good observation. Um, I would hope that it helps make us better. Um, Not not necessarily because I think it will change our natures, um, but because I think, or I, I would hope, that it will help us achieve better solutions in terms of the way that we live together. Um, If you take climate change, climate change is um, a a very difficult problem to solve because, of course, if one country decides to um, be sort of very good and limit emissions and do this and that and the other, um, it might be easier for that country to do it than for another country which maybe is less back uh, is, is more backward from a developmental sense and and needs to emit more in order to sort of catch up economically speaking how do you how do you resolve those tensions and i think that asi will be able to help us do those things i mean goodness me you know if if we could if we could help get asi to help us sort out the current situation in ukraine wouldn't that be wonderful? Help us sort out the situation in Taiwan. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It goes sort of, it goes on and on and on. And I know that sounds laughable, but there's been some fantastic steps forward just in the last 18 months with respect to AI playing games anonymously, such as Stratego, if that's how you pronounce it, and diplomacy, and doing fantastically well. 
you know, doing better than the great majority of the human beings playing these multi-dimensional, multi-personality games involving negotiation, bargaining, um, bluff, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think it can help optimize solutions rather than necessarily changing our basic natures. Um, it seems, Rupert, to bring up the combination, let's put it that way, of progress and ethics. What is good? And let's just circle back to an area I wanted to talk about, which is your banking, because you spent so much time in banking. And I'm just wondering what a brain like yours, a mind like yours, uh, was doing in the banking world. And to what extent did your philosophy of mind and all your PPE study uh, impacted the way you were as a banker? Um, if I'm brutally honest, very little. Um, mm. PP was one thing and very enjoyable to do. Um, banking was another. Um, I think I think the greatest thing I derived from banking was um, there were two great things that I derived from banking. One was seeing lots of different um, people get around a problem for example, uh, an acquisition of, of something, um, an acquisition of another company, um, and, and how they wound up negotiating with each other to solve problems. And so I think it gave me a greater understanding of perception of the fact that um, human beings iterate towards solutions. Um, and that can be a great process when it works, but it has its flaws and its drawbacks. Um, as we are seeing with many of today's geopolitical um, uh, tensions. Um, the other thing that it gave me was the ability to travel all over the world um, and see that people, people do things differently in different parts of the world, even though there are commonalities. Uh, there are different cultures, different proclivities. Um, you know, it's a complicated place. And I my belief is that the world has now become so complicated that human beings desperately need a helping hand to navigate the future. Well, that does resonate in this notion of the ASI and brings up the complication of who owns it, who's running it, which is why I wanted to tackle this, because in the end of the day, between Microsoft, Google, Facebook, uh, all the other independents, uh, but generally less well-funded. Then you have uh, Bydance and all the other gang over in China who are going to be equally fast looking at and developing their own ASI with their own set of ethics. And so where I wanted to lean with or walk with this is the financial story, or at least the, the mechanism of profit versus pro purpose, with these ASIs and how does one even consider regulating this where you know how the United Nations is really good at regulating Russia and China and America? Yeah, yeah, great question, great question. And it is one to which there is um, absolutely no good answer at the moment. Uh, the in, in China, the government has um, clearly taken uh, the big tech firms in hand over the course of the last two or three years. It's a pretty recent development. And you are seeing a great deal more um, centrally inspired um, 
you know, ways and, and approaches to uh, the development of technology in China. Now, that sometimes can be useful and it can get you there faster. And there's no question that China is able to uh, develop and build infrastructure much more quickly than is the case in many parts of the West. But if you look at creativity and imagination, um, you know, the great ideas in AI research still largely come out of the West and most particularly the US and um, to a lesser extent, the UK. And that is because government control over that sort of technological development is much less, um, much less present and people are allowed to get on with their own thing. I don't know what the right answer is. What I do know is that when a technology of that power um, emerges, then ultimately the state probably has to look after it. If you look at nuclear weapons, for example, it would be unthinkable that nuclear weapons would be in the arms of hands of private enterprise, unthinkable. Um, but if we ever get to a point where it makes sense for the development of technology in the West to shift into government hands, we need to be aware of the fact that if you then bureaucratize it by virtue of that, you may slow down that development. I think it's an unsolved problem. I don't know what the answer is. So one of my, let's say, spins into this uh, notion of consciousness is highly unacademic because it, it, it basically, well, I came into it through the path of psychedelics and for having done a fair amount of psychedelics, uh, it, it it opens your mind to a different idea of consciousness. Uh, and uh, certainly it renders the human being less important than the grandiose, godlike feature pedestal making ego headed uh, human beings that we have. And I, you write in your book, you, this is a sentence I, I, I struck me. You said, consciousness exists explicitly to optimize our thinking and our decision making. So if the consciousness is, is let's say, gate-marked gate or, or, or bounded by a government or a business, I would seem to, I, I feel like it would that limit its greater level of consciousness and iterate around something that's relevant for its existence as opposed to our existence. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um... Uh, yeah, I think that um, governments are not ultimately in the business of looking out for the individual. And um, there is a danger. I suppose I, I'm going to wind up saying I don't know well like I did with the last question. There is a danger that we get to a point where, um, you know, some individuals or many individuals are going to be making um compromises am i worried about that a bit but i suppose i'm less worried about it i'm not worried about it in principle i'm worried about it in practice the reason i'm not worried about it in principle is because as soon as any entity but let's just take human beings as soon as any entity lives in a group as soon as any individual lives in a group, that individual is already making compromises in order to live successfully in that group. 
And so uh, we may find that the compromises that we have to make as a consequence of what we've just been talking about grow in size. Again, I would say that's been happening over the course of, of the last hundred years. And the amount of legislation that exists rises with each change of government. Um, all legislation is, is a set of constraints on how we behave. They become ever more complex, ever more uh, present in our lives, and we have to make ever more compromises in order to deal with them. Well, it this sounds like being a lawyer is a, a career for the future. If you had in front of you, Rupert, uh, yes. you know, a class full of, of young, uh, eager uh, generation, uh, what role would you see humans playing in a world with this, these incredibly more intelligent machines? How can we ensure that humans remain relevant, powered in, in this scenario? It's, it's, a, it's a very good question, Matt, because it's one that the technology firms are taking on board in quite a big way. You know, there was a time, I mean, pretty recent as well, when you could describe the average employee at a technology firm and, you know, that average employee would pretty much encompass every employee. They'd all look the same. Um, but I think there is greater, greater realisation that technology has to work with human beings and, and, and in order for the designers, the technology designers to make that happen, they need philosophers they need sociologists, they need economists, and so on, and on, and so on, and so on. Um, and it, it goes back to this dovetailing of technology with humanity. Um, so looking at that class of eager beavers, um, I would say that you shouldn't deduce from all of this that if you don't know how to code, then you've got no future in the world. Um, the truth is that in order to be successful in the world, um, we, we have to make sure that the technology reflects the whole of that world, reflects all human beings. Having said all that, I think that the way in which the world is going to develop over the next 50 years um, will be um, more profound than at any other period in human history. And I think if I were talking to a class of eager beavers, it would be less a skill that I would insist on them developing and more an attitude or a state of mind. And that attitude or state of mind would have to do with um, open mindedness, resilience, um, ability to react to change around you, adaptability. They're those sorts of characteristics. And I know that sounds a bit of air, a bit airy-fairy, but if you're looking at a world in which there is a huge amount of change and that change is rapid with it, then those are the characteristics that you need. So just being a good lawyer doesn't really help you, but being a really good, adaptable, quick-thinking, open-minded person, that helps you. Well, uh, I, I, like you, I studied humanities, and um, and I tend to absolutely agree with you. I don't feel like it's the mindset to use or the state of mind that is typical amongst the CEOs with whom I 
interact and and far less uh, even likely if you work in financial services the idea of a philosopher in an investment bank like you were uh seems they they wouldn't have hired you because you're a philosopher they would hire you because you're competent enough to make a damn enough amount you know good amount of money identify good deals with good network and such as opposed to all these wonky anthropological sociological type of skills that would be true. Although, funnily enough, I was I was on the board of the London Metals Exchange, and one of my um, board members, one of my colleagues, um, was uh, had had been in that world, and then he left that world, and it's a pretty punchy world, the uh, world of the London Metal Exchange, and he left that world in order to do a PhD um, in. Um, the it, it was it was the behavior of traders on the london, london metal exchange from an anthropological perspective mm. and so um oddly despite his background he did bring the two together and it was it was a really really good read actually it was very interesting because ultimately whether it's banking or whether it's you know being at a university or anything else you could think of uh, it's all about how people behave and how they interact so we have seen recently a, um, I would say, a mass mediatization of AI through the chat GPT and um, it came out in November 2022. So a month after your book, uh, you, of course, do talk about it because it's based on the back of a technology that's been around for now three years, uh, at least the chat gpt is what is your opinion of it how how much fun have you had playing with it what does it make you think does it make you think that we're we've come quicker or or um are we just on track for asi um i think i think the idea of generative um ai in other words ai that doesn't just perceive and categorize but also generates content um is a to be expected. So in a sense, one shouldn't be surprised that this technology has emerged. B, to be welcomed, uh, because I think it can speed up um, many, many things that um, can get done. It can improve on many, many things that can get done. And funnily enough, my son is a creative in the advertising world, and he now routinely uses ChatGPT in order to um, help spark ideas, in order to, rather like you did, um, come up with um, questions um, as an alternative to, as an alternative or as, to, as, as an addendum to questions they've already come up with in your own mind. Um, so I think it's, I think it's fantastic and useful. I, I think that, um, as is often the case uh, with these, um, sort of apparently new things that that aren't quite as new as the media would see them um it's it's slightly less impressive than one might imagine because it doesn't um it doesn't address some of the key uh holes in ai capability um that exists so just because it's chat gpt and it's amazing in many ways it still can't do common sense um just because it's chat chat gpt and it's amazing in many ways it doesn't mean to say that it always talks um in an intelligent way it can sometimes spout complete cobblers but wouldn't you say that's true of humanity 
we uh, we're not if, if we can't code common sense does that not also reflect on the fact that we don't have common sense uh, i think we do have common sense um i think we just don't know how the brain does it and at the moment we don't have a clue therefore how to get ai to do it and i think there are other things that are perhaps less visible in the media that are going on at the moment that are possibly more important um, so for example deep mind a few months ago came out with um, a an algorithm that is capable of albeit in a virtual world is capable of handling entirely new problems that it's never come across before so chat gpt the reason it can come up with lots of great conversation is because it's come across pretty much all the conversation in the world beforehand and so it's just predicting from that wow what about an algorithm what about a, an ai capability that can actually come across something completely new a new problem and solve it and and uh this is this is what deep, deep mind came out with a few months ago albeit as i say within a virtual world so it's not it's it doesn't have all of the uncertainties of the real world and so i'm i'm not going to say that this new artificial general intelligence as you might call it is suddenly going to be appearing on the street near you near you soon it won't be but the fact is the technology is there and to my mind that sort of general intelligence technology is in many ways more important than chat gpt that makes sense so if you if you have uh, a lot of the people listening are working in business or entrepreneurs and and so if you're working in a in an enterprise or as an entrepreneur what advice would you give them this is your my last question for you uh, what advice should you give them with regard to all these developments in AI and, and uh, what do you think stands out as something that is really urgent for them to think about? Well, funny enough, going back to chat, chat GBT, uh, GPT, um, I think actually that's quite a good example. I think every mid-sized and large business um, needs to have somebody on board who is following these sorts of developments and thinking about how these developments are going to change the business model. So chat GPT is a fascinating one because it's it's not out there on its own. Um, Alphabet or Google has got its own chatbot. Bard. Um, um, well, there's, there's actually they've got more than one. Lambda is possibly the most famous one because, um, of course, uh, one of their employees said last year that they legitimately believed that lambda was a person um there's another uh, alphabet at, at the expense of his job at the expense of his job quite right good old blake mm -hmm. uh, good old blake um so so there are others out there now the reason they're terribly important of course as we both know is that they're going to be twinned with search engines so chatbot um chat gpt is going to be twinned with bing and so on and so forth now what this means is that search is going to be transformed over the course of, let's say, I'm plucking a number out of thin air, 12 months. So let's say you've got a marketing department and an advertising department that's focused on internet marketing as it was done in 2022, 
And then you suddenly wake up on the 1st of January in 2024 and the internet's completely different because search has been transformed. And let's just say as a big business, you hadn't thought about that. Woof, your revenues in 2024 are gonna fall off a cliff. And what of the discussion around ethics? Um, ethics, ethics, AI and ethics. Um, I think that it's a, it's a very good question. I think that's a different person. I think every mid-sized business and big business increasingly we will need an ethics person because every mid-sized business and big business will have to use these technologies or die. Um, but people no longer put up with bad corporate behavior. So you need another sort of person who's able to look at the implications from that perspective. Well, if I may, I still think that uh, Wall Street and uh, the city could do better in evaluating ethics as a, a indicator, uh, not for performance per se of the, of the company, but it, um, it's still not, let's say, a primary way through which investors uh, regard companies. It's, it may exist in certain pools, certain maybe enlightened people, but not quite yet in Wall Street, for the people that I know anyway. Yeah, that, that's probably fair. But do you know what? We, we slightly owe that to the fact that the corporation as an entity was invented whenever it was, 300 years ago, give or take. And it was invented to achieve certain outcomes. So it was a it was a construct. And that construct that was invented 300 odd years ago hasn't really changed. I mean, nobody's gone out and invented a new construct through which to conduct capitalist behavior or indeed um, any profit related um, behavior. And, and so corporations, even if they're in the city, are when they appoint ethics people, are appointing ethics people in order to solve a problem that is not a problem of, you know, that was made yesterday. It was a problem that was made 300 years ago when these contracts were, were set up. Um, we need a new construct which goes beyond profit for the interests of shareholders. Uh, maybe we need a combination of a lawyer and a, and a philosopher to come up with that. God knows, a lawyer, a philosopher, and an, an economist. But I suspect you need a brand new construct. Love it. On these fine words, Rupert, uh, how can anybody find your book, uh, which um, The Sentient Robot will be the preferred way for you to go and invite people to go read it? <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, as you might imagine, I'm going to recommend a um, technological vehicle uh, that's been around for 20 years now, and it's called Amazon. <laughs> Indeed. A friend, a friend for convenience. Splendid, Rupert. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, we, you and I chatted a little bit beforehand. You've got some uh, other projects in mind. Uh, in mind, that's the good term. Uh, looking forward to staying in touch and, and uh, following what you're up to. Thanks very much and encouraging everybody to go check out the sentient robot. Thank you very much, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com 
forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.